Hello and welcome to episode 37 of the Asia Climate Finance Podcast. I'm Joseph Giacobelli, your host. First, a quick apology. Haven't produced a podcast in September due to uh, work reasons, but now we're back on track and we've got uh, very, very great guests lined up over the next few months. Now, today is about clean energy in Asia from a practitioner's perspective. Now, industry practitioners are a key source to understand the business and finance of the energy transition in Asia. In this episode, we have a conversation with Robert McGregor. Robert is the Chief Corporate Development Officer of Gurren Energy, a pan-Asia renewable energy company. Now, Robert has a very long, highly illustrious and quite unique career in the energy industry, first in the UK and then in Asia. So his insights are especially valuable. Um, We had a broad-based and in-depth conversation on key topics revolving around the sector. Uh, Robert shared his thoughts on the current state of the industry in the region. We talked about corporate strategies and also the role of corporate culture and how important that is. We talked about financing and finally offered his outlook on the sector. As always, please try to support the show by subscribing and liking it. And also please note the disclaimer at the end of the show. Hope you enjoy the conversation. So how are you, Robert? Thank you very much for joining today. I'm doing well, Joseph, and it's good to see you. We've known each other a rather long time in Asia. Yes, I think I think uh, two pushing on three decades, but we won't tell too many people that. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're not getting any younger. So, Robert, just uh, I mean, I introduced your your kind of professional background, but maybe from your own perspective, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, Joseph, I I um, I've ended up in the you know climate change uh, environment, but. You know, I come from uh, the bad old oil and gas, so I had uh, 11 years with um, BP in the UK before uh, spending six years in the UK electricity industry. Um, I was then, I I was the client of an investment bank, and so I I did what they tell you never to do, which is, you know, a two-box move. I changed... uh, industry and I also changed geography. So in 97, I I moved to Hong Kong. Um, like many expats, I came to Asia and, and I have no intention of going back. And I also switched from being a, an industry participant to moving into investment banking. So I had 13 years of investment banking in Hong Kong. Uh, four years in Singapore, I was a partner with Actus, um, and then um, having undertaken the the IPO for Aboitis Power in 2007, um, my friendship with uh, the CEO of Aboitis at that time, uh, Monsha Aboitis, led to me joining the group, and uh, I was with Aboitis for two months until uh, July of this year when I moved once again from uh, Manila to Singapore, and I've taken up employment with uh, Gurren Energy. 
I think what's fantastic about your background is, you know, you've got the 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 upstream energy company experience, you've got investment bank experience, you've got a private equity experience, you've got a corporate experience. So you pretty much uh, got that whole landscape uh, pretty much under under your hat. But before we move on with some specific questions about that, could you tell us a little bit about Going Energy? Yeah, Going Energy is a company that was set up in 2021. And it's set up by the, the, the founders of the company, where the founders of a company called Syndicatum, which uh, people might know as being around in Asia going back, you know, to 2010 or so. The company is now backed by Infratil, which is a you know a listed entity which has a number of uh, renewable energy platforms, and Infratil is backed by HRL Morrison, which is a, a large fund based out of New Zealand. So uh, Gurin is uh, headed by a climate change activist, a very active uh, person who also does podcasts. Dare I mention it, Joseph? Um, Mm, and uh, he's he's a very passionate advocate of uh, renewable energy that's great and in terms of going what what is their kind of geographical uh, focus or is it is a global regional uh, asia yeah it's a regional company and Mm -hmm. uh, the company is active in uh, korea japan philippines Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, and Thailand. Um, right. So one of the things which might surprise people about the company is if you do research on it, it has a level of financing which would not appear to indicate that scale of uh, you know market coverage. Mm. But, but basically, the, the shareholders have encourage the founders that, you know, if you're bringing viable opportunities to the board and we're interested in it, then, you know, please continue to do so. Um, and, you know, so I think my impression, having only just joined and been there three months, is I think they punch above their weight. Mm-hmm. Just um, one, one final question about the background, because well, actually I have a lot of questions, but I'll just I'll just uh, just one, one last question in, in terms of the focus um, for, for Gurin, uh, I noticed that, you know, a lot of companies or funds tend to either go just developed Asia or developed countries or just go emerging. But you just mentioned you know, both Korea, uh, Korea and Japan, as well as Indonesia, Philippines uh, and, and Thailand. So uh, so there's no specific kind of uh, parameters in terms of whether it's emerging or developing. Um, I, I think that, you know, the, the primary products for Guren are solar and battery energy storage. And so between those two product areas, Guren has managed to find um, you know, viable leads of interest to the group without necessarily splitting the market into the what's traditionally been a North and a South Asian split, for example. Um, they, they also had activities in India at one point, 
particularly through syndicatum, but um, at the moment, uh, not not focusing on the Indian market, mm. but you know it would have been uh, a, a market that we could equally have considered. In all honesty. Right, 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 right. Uh, I'm going to go back to this um, developed and developing Asia uh, com- comparison in, in in a bit, but I, I will move on to talking about you know specific markets. I think one of the things that I mentioned earlier that you have, Robin, very few people have, is an incredible, rich geographical experience and also, uh, if I can put it this way, sectoral experience, uh, the, you know, the investment banking, the, the corporates, et cetera, et cetera. So um, from that perspective, you know, looking at, and we're not talking about the history of clean energy in Asia over the, over the past, over the past, you know, uh, 10, 10, 15 years, but what are you from your perspective, some of the key developments uh, or key landmarks that you've seen uh, in in this part of the of the world over the past you know f- five or ten years, and and where are we at right now? Yeah, I I think um, my observation, Joseph, is that. Uh, on the one hand, I'm surprised by the rise in renewable energy and the head of steam, which has which has developed. But on the other hand, I'm also observing that despite, for example, the very large numbers involved in China's fantastic investment in renewable energy, I think in terms of you know megatons of CO2 output, I think China still probably double the US, which is the next largest. And so, you know, when you point to statistics, you can see China's investment in thermal coming down tremendously. And despite that, they remain, you know, one of the most massive investors in renewable energy. So I think, think, uh, you know, China is a unique market in many ways. And unlike you, I don't have a, a language capability. So it's not a market I tend to focus on. I, I've always found China hard, Joseph, because it's hard to sit in meetings and have someone give a 15-minute answer and your translator mm. around and says, he says no. So, <laughs> so I avoid that. But I, I think another observation I would make is I, I think there's a battle going on at the moment. And it's between um, coal, which is proving to be um, very resilient to you know the the rise of renewables and the opprobrium uh, you know against coal as a fuel. It still continues to be on the increase. Um, you know I think especially say in Indonesia, um, the Philippines of course still has a quite viable coal sector, and I I think you know even though the banks have increased the extent to which they're not prepared to finance companies invested in coal. Um, there's a dilemma for the governments of the countries which which do have a dependency in coal, and that is how do they make commitments to towards a net zero and the introduction of renewable energy without damaging their aspirations for GDP growth? And I think one of the comments that um, I frequently came across during my time with Aboites was um, 
the developed markets in the West um, really were able to build their economies on the back of, you know, industrial revolutions that that used a lot of coal and thermal power. And, you know, now there's a there's a drive to take that away from the emerging markets, which are, you know, obviously an earlier stage of evolution in terms of the GDP per capita that they're trying to seek. And I think it's it's one of the reasons why, you know, there's a there's a slowness, um, you know, to completely have a you know a kind of revolution in renewables in Asia, um, and there's a there's a slowness to um, change away from coal. Now the the other fuel I haven't mentioned yet, which is uh, which is also involved there, of course, is LNG, mm. and. Increasingly, people talk about an energy transition, and the transition that they're talking about is to, you know, reduce coal, but to to get the benefit of uh, thermal technology through LNG. And I I think if you if you speak to people, like I think you know Joseph that my my beginning in life was I'm a chartered chemist. Um, if you speak to people involved in the, the chemistry of LNG, then along the supply chain there are leakages. And, you know, many people argue that the, the carbon footprint of an LNG plant isn't saving anything at all over uh, coal. And that, in fact, the, the release of methane is, is uh, more deleterious to the atmosphere than coal. N- nevertheless, because of the need for baseload capacity, people were looking for LNG. But because of the pricing of LNG, it would mostly have a role in mid-merit in most of the countries, um, especially if you already have the baseload of coal. And that then raises the dilemma that supplies of LNG come in sizes that probably suit plants which are like you know more than a thousand megawatts up to eighteen hundred megawatts but the need in a particular market might be six hundred and so especially in some of the Southeast Asian countries it's hard to develop the logistics to make the LNG market work because mm. you, you almost need a bunkering type facility where you can break the bulk car- cargo and supply smaller plants and at, at the moment, I think the economics don't justify that, and so I can't see it happening. So the larger LNG plants are likely to, to come in to replace, for example, in the Philippines, the replacement of the, the plants reliant upon the Malampaya natural gas field. So you've got coal, LNG, you've got renewables. Um, I, I think that there's a massive complexity that combines uh, the energy needs with the government requirements to keep funding GDP um, Mm. and also to try the best to look for ways to, you know, increase the use of sustainable fuels. Mm, mm, mm. Or or provide sustainable sustainable energy, should I say. So if I can kind of very badly, because I do that usually very badly, summarize it. Um, you, you were surprised on the upside 
in terms of the growth of renewables around the region, but also you kind of highlight the resilience of of coal because it's cheap, easy to get, etc. Um, and that's kind of preventing coal fire pounds from from disappearing quicker. Um, and then there's the role of gas, natural gas, uh, LNG, which is still you know a fossil fuel, but short term you can't you can't get rid of it. Is that is that kind of the appropriate summary of that? Yeah, I think it's, I think that's a fair summary, Joseph. Cool. Um, so, so given that, um, in terms of uh, the actual development and evolution of clean energy, again, market specific, which markets have kind of surprised you on the upside or surprised you on 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 the downside? And I think one one clear one um, is. Well, at least in me, for for me, is China because, you know, whatever, uh, however many gigawatts of coal-fired power plants are building, they're still the biggest uh, constructor of renewable energy capacity in in the world, and that doesn't seem to be slowing down. Um, but in terms of just picking on some of the Asian markets, which ones have kind of surprise you on the upside and which ones are surprise you on the downside? Maybe I can pick a couple on the upside. I think Taiwan and uh, the success that Taiwan had on offshore wind was, um, you know, it, it was a surprise to me, but that partly could be because, you know, for the same reason, I'm not following China closely. I don't follow Taiwan closely. But, you know, when, when I saw the you know, the success they had achieved, um, the, the early success. I think now they're beginning to hit some headwinds and I think probably the offshore wind investment globally is facing some headwinds at this time. But Taiwan was a surprise. Um, I think also the way that Vietnam came out the traps all of a sudden and had this huge uh, upsurge in uh, you know both wind and solar that was also a surprise and it was a surprise for a number of reasons it's it was a surprise because you you didn't really have security of supply you were exposed to the threat of curtailment and you were highly unlikely to be given uh, project financing without a parent company guarantee and despite all of that it, it was a massive success and massive, you know, investment was put into the country. So I, I was surprised at the, the speed at which Vietnam achieved that. Now, I think some of the investors in the market are, you know, now finding um, that it's a, that they have taken on risk. You know, the, 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 the whole devotion to go into the renewable energy market for some some people is a little bit faith-based you know for, for some people it's an ideology and and you know the and i think even my own ceo Assad, you know he's he's a you know really passionate uh, investor in renewable energy and and uh, there are a number of people like that but for for people who 
do not support it simply as an ideology, but see it as an investment opportunity. Um, so, you know, the people that crank the numbers real hard. Um, you know, once you get into Vietnam, um, there are ways to mitigate your risk, but, you know, it would be incorrect to say that you're not facing risk. So those were the surprising ones on the upside. On the downside, I, I think... I don't mean it that I'm disappointed in the market because I'm not disappointed in the market because I, I didn't expect too much. But I always find Indonesia a frustrating market for any investor. Um, I, I think uh, it was the first country in which um, I had an advisory assignment when I came out in 97 which was a very exciting period when they had the financial crash and a change of government. And, and many, many of the policies that existed at that time and the practices are still prevalent with the dominance of the state-owned entities. Um, making it hard for you know, an IPP environment to, to fully develop, especially in the renewable sector, um, I think there's massive potential for Indonesia to, to turn that round. And, and for me, it's a question of, uh, you know, just being able to put the correct implementing rules and regulations together that would allow that to happen. But it, that's easier said than done because of the, you know, the different vested interests of uh, the investors, whether they're foreign, whether they're local. Um, you know, the rules and regulations that apply at government level, and then, of course, the the dominant presence of the state utilities. So it, Indonesia is only um, slightly frustrating because it seems like a country that has the ability to do uh, much more, um, and it's really, it could do much more if it wants. Now, on the other side, it's also, it's also, formed of many islands which are just massive lumps of carbon so um, you know in Indonesia is at the forefront of that dilemma of what do you do when you've got coal sitting on your doorstep um, and unfortunately what they do is they, they cap the domestic price and they they have you know limits on uh, foreign uh, exploitation they um, they have subsidized electricity and you know in many ways they have to do that because um, it would cause enormous social unrest if they were to unburden the true cost of energy on, on a you know more than 200 million population so it, it, it's really understandable why they would want to go at a slower pace it's only frustrating when you look at it in comparison to surrounding countries in Asia which um, you know, might be moving on a little bit faster uh, because it is a country I think that could keep up if it, if it needed to. Um, what about what about the Philippines? Because to be honest, I thought um, historically the Philippines not not as bad as Indonesia in terms of massive potential, but that potential for sustainable energy is just not. Not not developing as fast as one one would like or one would expect. 
But I was pretty surprised with the Philippines, which in the last two or three years, and you're the expert, I'm not, um, has seen some massive shifts. And, uh, you know, you're finally seeing an evolution or maybe even revolution of sustainable energy in the, in the country after many, many years of hope. Um, what, what, what's, your, what's your feeling on that? Um, I think they have changed. I think they, they have, uh, you know, uh, begun to develop a, a good renewable capability, mainly solar and onshore wind. Um, there have been uh, discussions about, you know, between three and five gigawatts of offshore wind. And there, there were some concessions which were, you know, auctioned off. Um, and there are parties interested in that. But this comes back to implementing rules and regulations again. It's like, mm. how do you bring three to five gigawatts into a system which doesn't, it doesn't have the ability to take it, neither physically nor in terms of uh, consumer demand? Um, you, you've also got in the Philippines, um, you know, that you still you still have a fair amount coal. Um, it's, a, it's a smaller extent than Indonesia, obviously, it's a smaller market, but you have coal and you have um, the requirement of the companies that were burning the Malampaya gas. It, in order for them to stay viable, they, they have to switch to LNG, otherwise the plants are redundant. And so you've got, um, you know, you have a large thermal component still present in the Philippines. You also have, um, again, it goes back to the, you know, the economic pricing. Um, the early stage incentive for people to invest was a feed-in tariff. And the feed-in tariff mechanism kind of simply builds up a bit of a debt that needs to be repaid to people. Um, over time, you know, that will become a burden for any government. So there, there was... Uh, decision that you know they wouldn't have any more feed-in tariff. There were also arguments from uh, a number of people saying that renewable energy had become competitive enough to um, bid in its own right without the subsidies. But I, I think in practice that's not really the case. Um, you can get close, and I think I think the driver is that. Companies have committed to certain, um, you know, uh, percentages of uh, renewable energy in the portfolio. Um, in some cases, that goes back to ideology. Uh, you know, there are some Philippine companies that are completely dedicated towards, uh, you know, uh, having no thermal and then being 100% renewable. And that's that's what they want. Um, there are other companies who say that they, you know, they will invest in renewable, provided it makes the, a sensible economic return. And because of the the desire to also avoid being uh, blacklisted by banks, um, you know, some people are having to, you know, tone down the extent to which they're involved in coal. Um, so the Philippines, I think the Philippines. Has developed very well. I think it's got some good um, champ 
campaigns, they tend to be domestic. I mean, there's probably one company which has um, deliberately, you know, chosen to be a more regional and international entity. Um, more of the investors are domestic. Um, I think one of the things that we're seeing, and this applies across um, many of the markets, Joseph, the, when when renewables very first came out, it was the renewable arm of either an oil and gas company or the renewable arm of a utility company, which which were kind of the first people that got into the space. And they, all of a sudden, they were invaded by people who had no baggage, young companies whose only ambition in life was to build a renewable energy platform. And, uh, and I think that over the piece, to a large extent, the newer, the newer companies, the newer names have displaced the traditional names. It's a bit like the stock market. If you go back long enough, it was based on physical assets and it was the big petro petroleum companies, et cetera, that dominated you know, the top 10 of the FTSE. And, I, I, and you know, that's all been displaced now by, you know, the, the data uh, requirement. And I think we're seeing the same thing in uh, renewable energy. And part, part of the reason for that, I think, is that the barriers to entry are not as big because, you know, people can get into solar in a way that you wouldn't necessarily easily get into a big utility, you know, investment in, in coal or whatever. I think also though there's a there's more agility and more innovation shown by the smaller companies. They, 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 they don't they don't come from the rules and hence they're not bound by the rules. So I'm not saying they break laws or anything, I'm just saying that they they don't they don't have a a systematic way of working which is anything like a utility or a large oil company. They're much more flexible, they're much more entrepreneurial, um, you know, they're much more brave, innovative, you know. So one of the things I'm finding, for example, with Gurun is uh, all of those characteristics are present in Gurun. You know, they, mm. they, they, they are, if, if you're a developer, you're a kind of pioneer, you're like an explorer at the frontier. So, you know, you are, you are, taking risks in some parts of the market which don't mm. necessarily have all the rules in place. Mm. So if you're not a developer, you might say, you know, I can't build my spreadsheet model because I can't forecast X, Y, Z in my spreadsheet. And a developer might say, you know, sort of build it and they will come. You know, they're, they're more prepared to think physically about the provision of the energy and they'll get the land and they'll get the panels and they'll you know get the right pricing for the customer and they're prepared to move they're prepared to go take the chance that maybe a, a more systematic company that's a bit older you know they, they would have a greater difficulty in ticking the box for, for the investment because they can't see the future uh, to, to, to piggyback on that a little bit before before I kind of kick off talking about finance the financing of renewable energy. Um, isn't it also the 
corporate culture issue because as you mentioned in the early days you had renewables was basically investment by the uh, certain subsidiaries of oil and gas companies or utility companies but the approach from these traditional energy companies was just a traditional approach so they would look at a solar at, i don't know 50 megawatt solar utility scale uh, power plant in the same way as a 2000 megawatt coal-fired power plant so the whole process was in due diligence and investment review etc was incredibly cumbersome for such a small investment right so isn't it also that these more these newer companies their agility and their innovation also comes that they don't have this cultural corporate cult a fossil fuel corporates culture if that makes any sense <laughs> no um maybe i can give some uh, practical examples um mm. when i came into gurin it's an out and out development company it's, a, it's it has more characteristics of a startup than you know than a, than a traditional um, utility company right and we have a meeting every monday and mm. when we have that meeting we don't get asked what's your plans for the month or what are you working on and you know where will you be by november you get asked what you're going to be doing on tuesday wednesday thursday and friday of that week mm. And, mm. and so you know the the there's a difference in in terms of the i'm not interested in knowing sort of your long-term strategy we already said what we want to go for. I want to know whether you're acting on it. Mm. So, you know, if you said I want to do solar in a certain country, your first thing you're going to have to do is get the land. No land, no project. So, mm. you know, what are you doing tomorrow to get that land? What were you doing Wednesday to get that land? What were you doing Thursday to get that land? There's a, there's a, a complete different emphasis, you know, like if, if you need to see someone, just like pick up the phone, we find out when they're available, do it now. And it, there's none of the, there's no kind of uh, slowness. That things don't work in like two week cycles. It's like it's by the day and it's activity based and it's results oriented. Um, the, you know, in, in previous companies, I've had investment committees that were maybe once a month. Mm. Um, in Gurun, we we have them um, every two weeks, and the format's a bit slightly different. Um, as I said before, in certain in certain projects, you you make your best estimate and you you put together your financial model, but right. um, it, it's like you. I think. The difference in approach would be it goes back to that pioneer versus you know uh, you know um, spreadsheet based investor. It's like the pioneers say this this investment model, the financial model for this looks as though it's pointing in the right direction. Let's go. And mm. maybe the the non pioneer sort of has a greater belief in 
the spreadsheet has a greater play on the decision over the investment, whereas the spreadsheet's a guide to a developer and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, I don't want to call it a god, but, it, you know, it, some people rely on the spreadsheet fully to give them the answers yes or no. And I'm finding that in Gurun, don't get me wrong, they use spreadsheets as much as anyone else I know, and they've got outstanding uh, corporate finance capabilities. Um, but they also they also have a developer's approach to judgment call. And I don't think that what they're doing is uh, necessarily unique. I think it's something that you would see in, in other companies of a similar ilk, or even, even some of the, the developers that are a little bit bigger. I think that's just one of the differences between, you know, people coming from a more corporate background and people who have come from a startup platform environment. Mm -hmm. But but again, these corporates and corporates, and I mean, my own personal experience, not to mention any particular company, uh, is that, you know, if you, you know, renewables is, is a smaller investment, you need to be a lot quicker, especially you know, there's only so many um, good projects, quote unquote, good. So if you don't move quickly, so if you approach it in the same way as an oil gas company approaches uh, a, a, I don't know, a, a gas, a gas well or something, which takes you know months and months of decision making, investment review committees, and and, and consultants and so on and so forth, you're just completely going to miss the boat. So that's what I was getting at in terms of, you, you know. Companies like Gurin and other companies that are younger, uh, don't have the cultural baggage, are more agile, are more innovative, can move a lot more quickly. Although, you know, within with set disciplines, of course, like you mentioned, I mean, you're not, you know, you're still going to look at the at the spreadsheet. You still want to make the pro, the, pro, the project viable. But my experience with uh, with very large corporates is that um, you know, it's somebody you know, extremely overweight trying to run a marathon, which is not impossible, but won't be easy. <laughs> That's just yeah. my thoughts. <clears throat> I, I, would, I wouldn't take that personally, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, in the same category. I'm not going to be running any marathons soon. <laughs> I, think, I think, Joseph, I would go back to another factor, which is, um, is the company that you're working for, does it have an idea? logical uh, passion to invest mm. in renewables. Um, I think if you have multiple opportunities of where you place your money, then it, it introduces an element of rationality, which is all about capital allocation. Mm. And, and so you, even if you have people within your company who are passionate about the renewable energy sector, you might still have a degree of rationality on the board of directors, which would um, not allow you to make investments based on ideology alone, that mm. the investments would have to make economic sense. And some of the returns uh, across the world on, on renewable energy, they're, they're not necessarily fantastic. Um, you know, people have invested heavily and Probably the, the, the largest profits being made in the renewable energy sector are when um, one of the large institutions 
uh, especially in private equity, wishes to take out uh, a, a platform or portfolio. Um, those are those are acquisitions which um, release a tremendous amount of uh, alpha in 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 the the valuation and the, you know to the benefit of the founders. But the underlying business itself, you know, the the reason that they're paying so much is is really based on the achievement of growth um, and because they know that at a later stage they'll be able to flip that flat platform yet again um, and you know if, if they've managed to successfully build on the pipeline that they've inherited then they're going to benefit once again but if you look at it asset by asset not all of the renewable energy investments stand up well when they're compared to other opportunities available to someone who's got money mm. so th this is a dilemma for people who have you know like a, like a conglomerate business it, it has to think carefully about the best place to, to put its money because you know the value creation for its shareholders might not come from that sector which is also a reason why um, it's not not every not every conglomerate can uh, can achieve the sort of scale that you know an independent uh, renewable energy business can, because they're not making decisions based on arguments about capital allocation. They might only be arguing about which countries in which to allocate the capital. But if they've decided that solar, wind, and battery energy storage are the future of the company, they, their entire purpose is motivated in that single direction. So. They have they have purpose and they have drive and they have a belief. And usually that belief goes towards um, when I say ideology, I, I mean that people feel passionately about climate change and about sustainability and, you know, about the damage that's been done to the natural world by, you know, the rise in, in, in temperatures and, uh, you know, the melting of ice. So, you know, there's a there's a reason why some people go at it with, uh, you know, with, with real passion and drive and why others are more um, inhibited by the need to be rational. Mm, 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 mm. So, so we, we, we've looked at um, some thoughts on the renewable energy markets in Asia. We talked about corporate strategies or the role of corporate culture. And you know, all of this obviously needs to be financed. So we do, we do need to uh, to talk about the green financing or sustainable financing of, of all of this. And if I can break it up into the equities world, the kind of corporate bonds world and uh, commercial, commercial bank loans. So on the equity side, I think it's pretty simple. There's still a lot of... Uh, companies uh, bulging up, so to speak, so they're still too small to to list. And also the global equity markets haven't exactly been going through the roof, especially the Asian ones. So uh, I guess IPO-wise, we'll probably see more kind of IPOs coming through, you know, in the latter part of the next five years as opposed to the early part of the next five years. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you totally agree with that. Um, and then... But but then on the bond side, I see I see that keep on booming. Um, it's it's a great way for 
renewable energy projects, renewable energy companies to 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 finance their uh, their growth. And then finally, you know, we can talk a little bit about uh, both the commercial bank lending uh, in Asia as well as some of what the multilaterals are doing, or should I say not doing, or should be doing, but are not doing. Um, so, so um, yeah, what, what, what are your thoughts on all of these ex- extremely hum- humongously big topics? <laughs> well, for, first of all, I think that the, uh, you know, renewable energy is able to attract finance from any of these product areas. Um, I, I've not come across restrictions or reluctance. Um, you know, the for for people who are pure play renewable energy committed, you know, I think for example, someone like Ethan has shown that you know, as a, an entity separate within the Ayala conglomerate, they they are, you know, they're they're able to raise money by a number of different means. Um, and I, and I think that that's typical of uh, of the market. I don't. I don't think there's any illiquidity and there's no illiquidity whether you're local and international. Um, on a local basis, uh, one of the limits could be a single borrower limit from certain banks. Um, but I don't think that that would ever be threatened by solar energy investments because you know, I think a very large couple of billion dollars for a thermal project might cause a an SBL issue. I don't think renewable energy would cause any upset whatsoever. And I think you therefore have the choice of the market you want to tap into. And for the Treasury Department, I think that just becomes then an exercise in the diversification of, uh, you know, its various financing sources. So that's got uh, a mix of uh, foreign and local currency and a mix of bonds and, uh, you know, term financing. Um, on the project financing market, um, probably one of the challenges is, is uh, there's still a, a kind of, it feels almost like an old fashioned desire for certainty. And the certainty is either in sort of irrevocable sort of PPAs um, or, or you know, a parent guarantee. And I think, I think my, one of my observations of project financing in Asia, in particular, is uh, maybe a, a bit of a reluctance to to take much much risk at all. Actually, um, so for example, I think that's why so many of the projects in Vietnam um, were were not project financed. They were not non-recourse. There was there were one or two projects which managed to receive money from uh, Vietnam banks, um, likely to have been relationship driven. Uh, you know, in the sense that if you've got a relationship, you know, people will give you some slack that you're not going to renege debt. You're not going to walk away from it. If you've got the client reputation with the bank, you get some leeway. But as a foreigner coming in, you know, like uh, not easy to get, uh, you know, non-recourse debt. Mm, but mm. I, I, I think I, I don't think there's a limit 
that in, in the development of Asian renewables, I don't think there's a limit which is due to financing. That's not the limiting factor. The limiting factor, I think, are you know maybe in, inadequate rules and regulations to incentivize the introduction of renewables. Um, I think also um, it's if you're going to if you're going to have a market which has a level of intermittency, you're going to put pressure on the transmission system. And if you're going to build uh, offshore wind, you're going to make that, you know, even more so because the scale is so so huge. So there needs to be a a, a physical development of the transmission systems to more easily accommodate um, renewable energy into the system. Bearing in mind that many of the you know solar and wind installations they're usually off grid. They're usually you know they can be connected, but they're not necessarily embedded within a connection area. They normally need a connection to be planned. And so I think one of the things we haven't talked about uh, much, Joseph, is that you know the, it, going forwards in the next 10 years, I, I actually think solar in conjunction with, uh, with battery energy storage is still going to dominate over wind. And I, I have a little bit of a rationale for this, which is that wind to me is a mechanical technology and the improvements in developing efficiencies in the wind market are usually related to how big you can make that blade. Mm. Um, sometimes when I see recent photographs in LinkedIn, I, I sort of think, especially for onshore wind, <laughs> you're just not going to have roads that allow you to deliver um, you know, blades to, you can't get round the roads, there's such massive you know, installations. But I also think that because they're mechanical, there is a limit to the mechanical uh, efficiency improvement, which is not the same as solar. And I think because solar has more of an emphasis on sort of electronics, it's like the Silicon Valley type effect, where I think you have a higher chance of both price reduction and a growth in efficiency, not unlike semiconductors. Mm, mm. But, you know, you know, can you imagine if, uh, you know, I think forecasting the price of panels, despite the demand going up, the panel prices are, are uh, coming down at the moment. Mm. And I think, you know, the efficiencies, you know, what if you start with 18 or 16 and you've got some degradation, you know, you, you don't you don't have to massively increase the the efficiency of those panels for them to to really change, you know, quite significantly their capability. And I think when you combine that with battery energy storage, probably that's another technology which I think over the next few years has the opportunity to improve dramatically as well. You know, what to me what we're looking at at the moment it reminds me of the you know the famous picture of the, I think I think it was a couple of hundred kilobyte IBM computer being loaded on a van that was about the size of a wardrobe. You know, 
mm. I think I think the watch you're wearing has got more computing power than than this uh, computer had. And when you look at the developments in in uh, you know the electronics, I kind of think battery is is a, a very nascent stage and and is a yes. you know it's a useful technology at the moment, but it could become very useful if if they can. If there was ever a revolution in, in the technology of battery energy, energy storage, it would have such a magnificent effect on solar that it that it would change the capability of solar to, you know, displace a lot of the thermal plants. Um, be, before I pick your brain again about the kind of the outlook side, side of things, go, going back to the current state of financing. Um, what are your personal thoughts um, on on multilaterals? Because uh, you know, com- uh, entities like the ADB, AIIB, etc., uh, are supposed to come into some of the markets and help investors de-risk those mass those markets. You know, by by some by 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 loans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know, they keep on saying they're going to do more of that they're going to be more aggressive etc but you know it's been a lot of one step forward and two steps back as far as the track record is concerned do, do you see th- that changing or that that, uh, that is changing right right now because there's been a lot of rhetoric uh fr- from these banks or you think that they're that that's not going to really uh that this hasn't really been much change in their attitude i i I don't think I've seen uh, a change in capability rather than attitude. I think the attitudes have changed. And I think the appetite for the multilaterals to want to be involved is is positive. I, I think their capability to find the best way to enter the markets is still frustrated. I mean, the the multilaterals are really, uh, you know, the tremendous bureaucracies. Um, so, you know, sometimes they have wanted to come into projects and perhaps share in equity or, you know, they want to be part of a, a club deal uh, for financing and to be involved in it. And I think I'm being a, I'm being general here. And, and, and so, you know, I, I know that there would be specific examples of right. tremendous this but I think I think my general impression has been that the involvement of the multilaterals has generally slowed up uh, the ability of people to to get transactions and if you go back to our earlier comments Joseph on you know agility innovation fleet of foot you know ability to move at a faster pace it's exactly what you don't need in the renewable environment, which which really should be moving, you know, it should be leaving people in the dust compared to a conventional investment process. And so I think that's where you have a, a disengagement that the multilaterals are, I think, very well intended. I think some of the plans that come up with are well intended, but when they do participate in the projects that quite frequently I'm hearing, that they're unable to, you know, keep up with the pace of, of what a developer might want to do. They, I think, they also probably are more risk averse than 
many of the people involved in the green energy environment. And it comes back to this, you know, spreadsheet driven thing. It's like, it's okay to have a scheme, but in order to get the scheme approved, I think you have to stand behind something that looks certain, some spreadsheet that looks certain. And as I said earlier, there are developers who are prepared to say, I, I think the spreadsheet's telling me this is green for go, or the spreadsheet's telling me just don't touch it, or the spreadsheet's saying if I fix this, move on, you know, so it's the traffic light system. And I, I don't think I don't think an organization that has to account for its every step would find that comfortable. And I can understand I can understand why that happens, but it does mean that the, the very well intended forms of assistance are hard to take up. Yeah, I mean, I, I had that personal experience with one particular entity about three years ago where we were talking about financing a solar plant somewhere, which was not, was not a big, was about 35 megawatts. And, uh, you know, we got the feedback that would take them something like several months before you can actually go to their investment committee, et cetera, et cetera. And when you, and you know this better than I do, to build 35 megawatts, it only takes several months. So yeah. basically the whole thing could have been built by the time they make a decision to consider it, not to yeah. decide whether or not they're going to finance it, but to consider it. And then they're going to have to do a whole heap of, you know, due diligence. So it, it's just, a, I, I personally find that very frustrating. I mean, I know where it's coming from. I know there's, there's got to be rules, regulations, processes, et cetera, et cetera. But given a lot of these, uh, banks i'm not i don't I'm not picking just on you know the asian development banks but in any bank that has got the world development uh in in their in their acronyms uh it just doesn't 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 make sense that you actually don't don't help where you should be helping um what one final question about the financing before we talk about the outlook um and i remember you and i had this conversation several times over the last quarter of a century, um, which is about uh, expected returns. So, um, you know, obviously, you know, you, you, you come up with your equity risk profile of that particular country, then under that particular project. Um, do you find that, you know, smaller companies or, or, or younger companies have a little bit more agility in terms of thinking about returns or um, you know what's what, what's what's your views views on that uh, first of all you know whether you're large or small I, I don't think I've I've really seen uh, well perhaps uh, let me take an exceptional case I I have been very surprised by the demand for people to invest in offshore wind globally with returns which are very often um, not even high single digit. And that, that, that to me is a kind of is counterintuitive because you know, surely to goodness offshore wind must be a, 
a difficult, you know, thing to construct and, you know, to design, plan and construct. And yet, you know, you've got companies that are prepared to go in um, and invest heavily in that sector. Um, so, so that that surprises me. I think um, there's a difference in return expectation, whether you're buying or building. So, say for example, a company uh, that's that's building greenfield plants might be more uh, looking for a mid-teens return in the current environment. Um, it, but but you know that if you if you were involved in an acquisition process, you're obviously going to be quite a bit below that. And those those return levels apply to most companies. So there are occasions when sometimes you know people would say certain companies have a cost of equity advantage. You know, maybe you do. You know, you get the odd occasion when your your multiple might be so high. You, you, you know, you can decide that growth is more important than actual return. Mm. In order, to, and, and certain companies have faced that circumstance. Um, you know, in, in the recent past, where they they have to take advantage of the high multiple, and in fact, the high multiple is there because they've been they're committed to deliver, and so. Sometimes you see investments which are uh, a little bit lower of an IRR than you might have expected, and that's because it's more important to keep building the megawatts and growing. But in in, in general, you know, the, there's the the kind of risk-free rate plus you know an equity risk premium of anywhere from four to seven. And you know, frankly, I think that for some people, you know, the the the, the beta which is applied to that number, you know, it, it, you know, it varies, I think, depending on what you've already got, what your capability is. For some people, it will be above one. And if it's your bread and butter, some people might just say it's like 0.5. You know, anybody mm. can build solar and it's easy and just get on with it. So it's, I don't think um, it's easy to predict the returns. Um, you know, some... It, one of the things I always found in an Asian auction was that no matter who won the auction, they were always accused of, of overpaying. <laughs> and uh, you know, and by definition, if you're the winner, you overpaid versus everyone else. So there's an element of truth in that. Mm -hmm. um, but also, it's the reason why I, I actually am aware of people who are who are very wary of winning an auction because uh, the future promotion in an organisation might be dependent on the financial performance of that investment they've just made and uh, so you know losing by a small amount means you were rational and careful in your bidding winning and then not being able to deliver the IRR is dangerous for your uh, for your future career <laughs> it's a very, very good point um sh shifting the gear to to the last the, la the last bit um so the question I prepared, what I was thinking of was, which markets, which technologies are you, you know, most bullish on in terms of, on a developer view? So, you know, 5, 10, 20, 20 year view. Um, you mentioned uh, solar plus storage, which, by the way, I 300% agree, you know, agree with you. I think the 
technological developments that we're seeing and the uh, price curve uh, decline that we're seeing will 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 continue for for quite some time, especially on the on on the uh, on the battery side. But uh, yes, yeah, so what, which markets and technologies, you know, would you be a little bit more bullish on on a very long term view, on a developer view, so 10, 20 years? Well, I you know I think um, probably up till now, Joseph does. It, it, you know, I, I don't. I think you can pull out any statistics you like, but in terms of how people feel about renewable t- technologies, I don't think there's really much differentiation between solar and wind at the moment. You know, and people are are, are you know by and large neutral to uh, whether they get involved in in one or the other. Now, I, I, I just have a feeling. Um, some of the things that you're seeing in the UK at the moment, you know, the, the resistance to the, the onshore wind, for example, uh, not in my backyard. Um, I think also, you know, how much offshore can you build without affecting uh, migratory birds, uh, fishing, um, you know, naval access. So where does the where does the offshore wind, you know, really really uh, you know end when you look at solar i i think that one of the the arguments that people have against the growth of solar in the asian markets is that you're usually using up land which might be agricultural land and so you know we spoke about the philippines earlier and you know part of the difficulty in the Philippines is land conversion. Um, so you have people saying that how is it possible to continue to develop solar so expansively over you know green areas over land which might have been able to be have been used for food production, and especially in a world of uh, growing populations. Um, how do you wrestle with that? One of the things I, I, you know, I've observed of late, and you know, which we've also been looking into, is, is the, the sort of agri-solar type environment where you you might be able to still allow, um, you know, the the sort of livestock. I'm not sure whether you know um, plantations could survive in an environment where you know the whole they're needing photosynthesis and sunlight and the panels are there to take it away from them. But maybe livestock is is still an option. But, you know, some people say there'll come a point in the future when someone will wake up and say, what idiot allowed all of the land to be covered with these PV panels? You know, because it's going to, it's going to, you know, like look like something out a Terminator movie at some point. (laughs) <laughs> with you know, with massive tracts of land, you know, especially from satellite, going to be covering the 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 area. But it, it's why I think improvements in technology should reduce the size. Um, improvements in battery technology should reduce the size as well. But I also think you know that that I've been involved in in some companies which are looking at vertical farming, and 
at the moment, vertical farming probably can't be done on a, I would say, an industrial scale. It's more, you know, the maybe a more local product than a, than an international product. But you know, in, innovation in farming is also needed in Asian markets. Uh, the, there's many reminders to me of, uh, you know, how the how the farming industries were in in the 18th century in the UK and in Scotland, where the, you know, people that were allowed to have small defined areas in which they could, you know, cultivate crops was really a subsistence. And it wasn't until mm. they decided to industrialise that, that agriculture itself became a business that was viable. So in some parts of Asia, you know, when, when you're trying to acquire land and people might be reluctant to give it up because they, they are doing some farming, it, you know, it's hard. It's hard to to be able to explain to people that in fact, you know, what they're doing is just, you know, it's a is a subsistence. It's not a business. It's it, it's but it's the livelihood. So you're trying to respect the livelihood, but equally, it's it's not a livelihood in which gets it gets them out of wherever they are in the range from poverty to you know a certain degree of working income. So. I, I do think that, you know, in terms of markets looking forward, I think you could pick any of the Asian markets in all honesty. Every one of them is capable of uh, installing more renewables. Mm-hmm. We have, I don't think we've tapped the surface of renewables. I think government policies um, would enable it. I think also if people did arrive at a commitment where they would, where they would use less thermal fuels, I think that opens the door for it as well. Um, I think solar is going to be more, more um, preferred, more than, than than wind for companies to invest in. And I think the combination of solar and batteries is is what you know people might move towards. And as the costs come down, I think also the GDP per capita of every country is is going up. Um, mm. And, and I, I think there, there'll come a point where the, it, the affordability question will be less sensitive than it is today. You know, for, for Indonesia, I can't reduce those subsidies at the moment. For the Philippines, can't move prices too hard and fast. You can't just cut the baseload power, which is cheap, and replace it with, uh, you know, more expensive uh, renewable energy. And despite some of the claims made about, you know, there are people who hit the headlines in the Philippines that they can compete with coal and displace it. And and the practice hasn't come out, Joseph. People have not been able to follow through on that. Not not to the scale required to allow any material change in the constitution and mix of of the energy mix in the Philippines. So I think just generally, I think... Um, the, the features of the Asian market that I find are every every one of them is is growth oriented. Mm. The, the GDP per capita is growing across the board. The mentality of the people in every country um, it is positive towards improvement. There's nobody running around trying to work out how do we become more efficient, how do we cut the cost. 
in order to make something more profitable. It's nothing like that. People are throwing money at things because mm-hmm. they want they want to, you know, they're looking for double, triple, you know, quadruple what they can do. And and I'm seeing more and more signs of uh, a drive towards, you know, innovation, agility, venture capitalism, and and you know, more and more electric vehicles, more and more. Um, you know, um, solutions to the the motorcycle deliveries, and and I, I just think that you know, in the decades to come, I think Asia stays still at the forefront of you know the the the, the centre of the growth of the world because it's coming from a lower base and it has plenty to go. And you know, you only have to look at Korea as a tremendous example of that. You know, if you go back to I think 1965. Korea was a tremendously agrarian society, and you know, in in a tremendously short time scale, you know, you, Korea and you know Singapore, probably two of the most you know developed countries in the world in terms of the sophistication on you know the the electronics and you know the manufacturing, um, in, innovation and the use of technology. So. So that's why I came to Asia. That's why I'm staying in Asia. That's why I'm enjoying Asia and I'm loving the job. And I, I think what Assad has given me through Gurin, Joseph, is a, an ability to uh, serve some penance for the bad boy I was as a youngster in the in the thermal electricity industries and the oil and gas. <laughs> well, I, I I totally concur with your comments on the Asia and. Uh, so much so that I actually wrote a whole book about it, uh, how Asia is the center of the world when it comes to the energy transition and uh, in terms of uh, potential. Um, this was an absolutely fantastic conversation, Robert, as as always, um, ne- never, dis- never disappointed. Um, can I ask you maybe for some final thoughts and conclusions and, and, and takeaways? Maybe I could give you some personal takeaways more than anything else, Joseph. Sure. Um, you know, I, I even as late as 2019, I was working on uh, coal-fired power investments, and I think um, COVID was a little bit of a break and everything. Um, you know, a bit of a hiatus in everyone's life. Um, a lot of old habits were, uh, you know, um, broken. Uh, things like going to the office, um, things like flying, uh, getting around the region for me was broken. Um, you know, I, I, I think, as I said to you earlier, I took the opportunity to uh, to do something I was passionate about, which was to get a master's degree in Scottish history. But one of the other things that developed for me through that period was a, a growing desire to be involved in renewable energy. And it, it's not, a, in my mind, it's not completely an ideology. It's not the same kind of faith-based, passionate-driven as you know some of my, my peers and colleagues, but it is, it's more based on the fact that I, I've, I probably come towards it more on two things. One is sustainability, and one is on the fact that, you know, you, 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 if you travel, 
you can't help but notice the difference in flights. As a small example of climate change, the degree of turbulence on flights now is nothing like what it, you know, it, it's way beyond what it was 20 years ago. And, you know, and also when you look at, you know, when you get typhoons, um, they're severe. When you get flooding, you're now seeing flooding in places that you didn't expect to see it. And, you know, you know, especially when I look at the European markets, you know, some of the devastation that they're getting is because they, they never expected in a million years to be affected by flooding. So I, I think I, I had a real ambition and desire to, to want to, uh, I guess, finish my career because I, I, you know, I don't expect to, to, to keep on working forever. But I kind of, for me, this is like finishing on a high. It's, it's choosing, you know, what I want to do and, you know, what I'm, I'm feeling passionate about, which is, you know, to, to, to work in renewable energy and be able to talk to my kids about it and have a conversation and, and, and basically, you know, my, my kids don't need to know about, you know, the, the first 30 years of my, of my employment life. I'll just tell them about the last 10. Well, Robert, I'm really, really, really uh, grateful for your time. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. Fantastic insights. And uh, I hope, you know, we can do this again very, very soon. Thanks for the invite, Joseph. It's a pleasure to catch up with you once again. And I hope to see you uh, soon. Same here. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Asia Climate Finance Podcast. Please note that the Asia Climate Finance Podcast is presented for educational purposes only. All information in the podcast must not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed by our guests are personal and may not represent those of current or previous employers.